choosing a partner is a really big deal. <laughs> like it's a huge, mm -hmm. huge decision, but also not to get paralyzed trying for perfection. If you're interested in marrying, find out what it means to be healthy, emotionally, mm -hmm. psychologically, spiritually. Really, I don't mean come to some point of perfection where it has to be put off so long because you're still working on yourself. Tune into how you view yourself because that, that issue of significance is gonna come into play there. I think there's a laundry list in dating where you go, I wanna have these like mm. <laughs> 25 things. And you don't narrow it down because you care less, but you narrow it down to things that matter most. Spending time with the Lord and not making some sort of like wish list of like, this is, I want someone with green eyes and you know, curly blonde hair but asking God, what would you put on my list? There is a lot in scripture about what it means to be a person of character. Do some character studies in scripture, read through the Proverbs, you know, like what is it, what would you look for in a good friend? I think my boyfriend is so cute and wonderful and like has a great smile and all of that. And I'm very attracted to him, but I think that um, the things that initially attracted me to him were the things that God had already spoken to me. You need enough time to be able to see a person over time in a variety of contexts. Going on certain mission trips, problem solving and doing things together. And that to me, it was able, it was cool to see even before we were dating, just how each other kind of acts in a different place. Uh, to see her in stressful situations, to see her deal with people. How that person interacts with their family, looking at how they interact with their friends, how they interact with you, how they interact with strangers. Is there a consistency among all those things in the person that you're wanting to to Absolutely. build a life with, yeah. because that that will tell you a lot about who they are, what their character is like. When we're in the church setting, I guess, you kind of assume that everybody in the church is a safe person. That is being naive, and you're setting yourself up for disappointment. I'm not saying that be doubtful and assume the worst of people in church. What I'm saying is people in church, men and women, they're still human, even when in church. They're Christians, but with flaws and with issues and baggage. Like, it's important to get to know the person as they are versus the image of this man or woman being a Christian. Do not ignore red flags. None of us are our best self all the time. So there are episodic kinds of behavioral things, and there are chronic behavioral things. And I think that's an important distinction. Um, there are some things that are disappointing, and then there are some that can be destructive. Dig there. What, what are destructive relationship patterns? I've been in situations of like really liking people who just do not love God and seeing the image of God in them and wanting to pull them along with me. And it can be really, um, it just isn't life-giving. Even having a really physical relationship can like start to like hinder our ability to see people clearly. Conflict's inevitable. Mm -hmm. So be with somebody who you can navigate conflict with. Yeah. Because yeah. you're gonna have to. Yes. Disagreements are inevitable and, and marriage is only going to make disagreements more and then having kids is just gonna make it even more. And so it's like, if you can't find someone that you're you can fight well with, that's something I would be intentionally like aware of and looking for. This person that you're interested in, how healthy is their friend group? Because their friends will determine so much of who they become. And, and I've used the phrase before, but it's like, you're, you're show me your friends and I'll show you your future in the same way. If it's in the dating relationship, especially, it's like, you want to know that that person has people in their life that they can, they can turn to, because it can't, mm -hmm. we can't be reliant on each other in every situation. Um, people that knew us and loved us and supported us around us mm -hmm. to speak into our lives and to say, yeah, this is what we see in you, this is what we see in her. People who you trust to tell you the truth. That to me is, I think, one of the biggest gifts in this is that we're not doing this alone and we have people that are wanting to continue to be in our lives and encourage us and pray for us. It seems to me that when you meet somebody that you kind of like, you determine from that first moment, is this somebody I can marry? And I would kind of warn against that. I would say build friendships or go on group dates. Those helped me learn how to interact with guys 
without being in a, like, am I gonna marry you type setting. I think with everything in a respectful way to be able to ask, you know, how do you feel about marriage just in general, not putting that pressure of, just because we're dating means that we're gonna get married. I think as it progresses in that way, it's healthy to have those conversations. It wasn't, how many kids do you want? Because yeah. I want this many. Right. It was, what do you think about kids in general? And how do you mm -hmm. see, like, it, it wasn't a, about us, it was mm -hmm. about marriage and mm -hmm. about life. At the end of the day, I think what I can consolidate into is just having this open-handedness of saying, God, thank you so much for this good gift of this person who I get to grow with and it's a delight to do life with. But if you, Lord, choose to take it out, I'm gonna trust you that you know what you're doing and you're gonna put something else there that is good or even better. Not just for me, but for her as well. Isn't that great? Isn't that great to hear those stories? If you have a Bible with you, go ahead and grab it right now. I want you to open up to a book of the Bible in the Old Testament called Song of Solomon. It might also be in your Bible called Song of Songs. Uh, you can kind of flip through. It's right before the book of Isaiah. We're going to jump into this book in the Bible tonight as we continue our series on relationships and as we think about what God might have for us. And I'm watching that video and just realizing that everything named in that video, sort of everything we just saw, is actually contained here in this book called the Song of songs. And I think it's an important thing for us to think about tonight. Uh, what, what we see in the Song of Psalms as we're about to open to it, especially if you've never read it before, I think you're just going to be like mystified that this is actually here in the Bible. But what we see in the Song of Psalms is this incredible love poem. But, but it's beyond just a love poem. It's a poem that's filled with love and romance and sex and eroticism. It's filled with passion and it's filled with kind of this male energy and this female energy colliding in to one another. It's going to be a really fascinating book. Again, especially if you've never read it and never opened up to this part of the Bible. But there's one thing I need to tell you about it right from the top. And one thing that's actually going to be something you'll conspicuously notice throughout the entire sermon that's missing from this book. And what I want to tell you tonight is that the one thing missing from the Song of Psalms, the one thing that you will not find in there, is any reference to God. No references to God. In chapter 8, there's this debated verse that might kind of sort of be referencing God, but most scholars agree there is no reference to God in the book of Psalm of Psalms. I don't just mean the word God, I mean the Lord, the God, the supernatural. And so it kind of leaves you with this mystery. And the mystery is this. Why is a book that doesn't mention God in the Bible? The actual truth is there's two books that don't mention God, the book of Song of Psalms and the book of Esther. It doesn't mention God. This book here, Song of Psalms, does not mention God. And so here's the question. Why is it even in the Bible? Why are we here as a church on a Thursday night talking about this book? And in order to answer that question, I want to show you this mug. I hold before you a mug that I look at every single morning. I hold before you a mug that is obviously and clearly broken. It is not a valuable mug. It is not even that old of a mug. It's not some special mug that my grandparents handed down to me, but it is a mug that I love. And you might ask, okay, Brian, why do you have this mug with a broken handle? If it doesn't even work, why don't you throw it away and get a different one? And here's my response. I'm not going to throw this mug away because I love this mug. You see, here's what this mug is. This mug was given to me on a day in June in 2015 when I graduated from seminary. It says Fuller graduate there. I went to grad school for pastors and I got my degree there. And on the day when I walked across the stage, they gave me a bunch of nonsense, including this mug. And I love this mug. And I have this mug. And sometime in the last year, one of my children was in my office and they reached for this mug. And children have no clue that mugs are breakable. And indeed, it broke. So why don't I throw away this mug? The reason I don't throw away this mug, the reason I don't give up this mug, isn't because I especially even love the mug itself. It's because this mug means something to me. When I look at this mug, I remember five years of graduate school. I remember 144 units to get my master's in divinity. I remember going through that process of early mornings and late nights and pots of coffee and being in the library and driving to Pasadena and back in the middle of rush hour traffic, which makes you want to give up on everything. Okay, I remember that when I see this mug. So, so here's what I think about when I look at this mug. I realize like in some ways it's just like a little broken mug, but it's actually more than a broken mug, right? And here's my guess. My guess is you have some kind of trinket like that in your own life. 
Some little thing you have from childhood, some little thing you have from college, some little thing that you keep around. And if anyone ever saw it, they'd be like, why do you even have that? And you go, yeah, 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 it's a mug, but it's actually more than a mug. Like in some ways tonight, I'm showing you a mug, but I'm showing you something that's more than a mug. And I want to say it this way to you tonight. When we think about the Song of Solomon, this book in the Bible that doesn't even reference God, why would that be in there? This is a book about romance, about passion, about sex, about marriage. And why is that in the Bible? Well, here's the reason. Because in the same way that this mug is not about the mug, it's about way more than a mug. I want you to know tonight that romance is always about more than romance. That romance is always about more than romance. That love is always about more than love. That sex and passion and marriage and boyfriends and girlfriends is always about more than what it seems on the future. Let me put it to you this way. I want to say that romance is about these things. Romance is about your life, your body, your heart, your mind, your future, your worth, your desires, your dreams, your family, your friends. It's about all of those things. Uh, Like romance isn't the simple part of your life. I think most of you would recognize in your honest moments, romance is this expansive thing that consumes every little part of your life. And so here's what I want to point out. That if romance is indeed about all of these things, these significant central things to who you are, then what we need to know is that every time we think about romance, we're not just thinking about dating someone. We're not just thinking about a marriage. We're not just thinking about those things. We're thinking about everything. And when we think about subjects like this, we're immediately forced to think about the deeper questions of life. Like, who am I? What am I here to do? Who am I going to do life with? Am I worth anything? Does anyone love me? Does anyone care about me? This desire inside of me, will that ever be fulfilled? And when we begin to ask those questions, we get right down to the core of who God has created to be. And we realize this, that behind every romantic and sexual longing you have is a God who made you that way. So tonight I want to talk about the Song of Psalms, and you're not going to hear a reference in the text to God, but don't you dare believe, even for a moment, that I'm just kind of doling out like relationship and marriage tips tonight, because that's not the case. What you see right under all of your romantic longings, these sexual urges you have inside of you, that desire you've had since a little girl to be married, that desire you have to date someone, but no one seems to say yes to you, all of those longings are built into you by a God who made you that way. And so tonight, as we think about romance, sex, passion, marriage, I want you to understand that it's always about more than those things. It is ultimately and always about God. I want to show you the very first words of the book of Song of Psalms. Again, Song of Solomon, Song of Psalms. If you open up to that page on chapter one, in verse one, it says this. It says, Solomon's Song of Songs. She, and it's going to introduce a female character here who's going to be speaking throughout the song. It says this, let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth. For your love is more delightful than wine. Pleasing is the fragrance of your perfumes. Your name is like perfume poured out. No wonder the young women love you. Take me away with you. Let's hurry. Let the king bring me to his chambers. So this beautiful, erotic, sexual, marriage, romance poem begins with a young lady. And the young lady is just passionate about this guy. Like pleasing is the fragrance of your perfumes. Your name is like perfume. It's like every time she hears this guy's name, something stirs inside her heart, like her heart flutters. She goes on to say, no no wonder the young women love you. And then she goes this, like, take me away. Like, take me away. Come marry Like, this is ancient Hebrew for put a ring on it, okay? That's what this is. This young lady wants romance. She wants marriage. She wants to be in a relationship. And maybe the best thing I could start off this sermon is to remind you of a truth that we are going to say over and over and over again in this series, that it is good for you to long for dating and romance and marriage. It's a good thing. And we live in this whacked out culture that is attacking you on two sides. If you are a Christian who says that you want to get married, if you are a Christian who wants to be in a relationship, because there is a secular culture out there that has decided in all of its genius mind thinking that monogamy is no longer effective. And so you'll see articles online about how monogamy, the idea of being with one person, that's old fashioned, outdated. And then all the research comes in and shows people who decide not to go after monogamy aren't happy at all, but they just keep banging that drum. And so they look at you and they go, you really want to be married? That outdated, silly institution? And you're like, yeah, I mean, that's silly, but yeah, I still want to be married, right? 
And then there's like a Christian subculture that can do this too, because Christians are supposed to be the ones who support marriage. But Christians are also the ones who will dump something like this on you. They'll be like, you want to be married? Isn't Jesus enough for you? And you're like, I mean, you're like, yeah, yeah, yes, but I also want to be married. And they're like, that shows that you don't love God. And so you kind of feel guilty even bringing it up. I want to say over and over and over again, that desire, that longing you have to be married, to have romance, to be in a sexual relationship is not something for you to bury in the ground and repress. It's something for you to celebrate, to celebrate. And that's what we want to do over the course of this series. We want to think about it, talk about it out loud. We want to say it out loud. And we want to give you permission to tell your closest friends, your roommates, the people in your life, you know what? I'm single but I dream of being married someday. I'm single and I really want that romance that God has been stirring up in my heart. See, that's what the book of Song of Songs is about. Song of Songs is going to lead us through this journey and we're gonna kind of see little bits and pieces of it as we go tonight. But I wanna be really clear with you as we talk about the Song of Songs. Uh, Let me clarify what it's not. The Song of Songs, this book we're gonna look at, does not give a prescription for romance through prose. So you're like, what's prose? It's writing, okay? Prose is like when you write something and you're just trying to be clear. So so let me put it this way. The Song of Songs is not like the Book of Romans. If you're a Christian and you read the Book of Romans, it's like argument, basis of argument, next argument, conclusion of argument. Like that's how Paul operates. That is not what the Song of Songs is. Like the Hebrew mind and Hebrew poetry does not think that way. It is not a prescription of if you want to get married... Here's the four things you have to do. That's not what it's going to give you tonight. Here's what we are going to see tonight, though. The Song of Songs describes a progression of romance through poetry. That's what we're going to see tonight. We're going to see this young lady who's laying on her bed just going, I want to be married. We're going to see the progression of that romance through poetry. So at times, it's going to seem a little unclear. And at times, I'm going to point something out, and you're going to be like, oh, I guess that means that, which is how all poetry works, right? So so when we come to the Bible, what we're going to do is we're going to say, this is poetry that's trying to give us a progression, a a normative progression, I would say, of how you start as a single person with a deep desire for romance and then find yourself in a beautiful love story that ends in marriage. See, tonight I want to talk to you about a very simple thing, and that would be the path to marriage. Tonight, I want us to see this path. I want us to understand this path. Again, it's not a this is what you have to do in every step of the way, but it is a description of a progression that I believe all of us can be on or or maybe someday will be on. Uh, And I want to show that to you through the scriptures tonight, the path to marriage. Uh, There's seven steps to this path to marriage. Again, these aren't like the seven things you have to do, but it's the seven things that are being described here in this book. So again, uh, we're going to keep going here. We are here in verse nine. If you're in your Bibles right now, following along, it says in verse nine, He says, I liken you, my darling, and this is the man speaking. I liken you, my darling, to a mare among Pharaoh's chariot horses. Your cheeks are beautiful with earrings, your neck like a string of jewels. We will make you earrings of gold studded with silver. So like his opening line is like, you're beautiful like a horse, okay? And yet like it works, like that's the rest of the story. This works. So she fires back with this. She goes, while the king was sitting At his table, my perfume spread its fragrance. My beloved to me was a sachet of myrrh resting between my breasts. My beloved for me was a cluster of henna blossoms from the vineyards of Engedi. Right? Like there's this poetic description going on. This little chatter. This like, this is ancient Hebrew for flirting. Okay? That's what's going on. They're at a table. They're sharing a meal. You see that? They're they're sitting at a table sharing a meal. And then it says this in verse 15. How beautiful are you, my darling? How beautiful are you? your eyes are doves, like your, your eyes, birds, okay? She fires back. How handsome are you, my beloved? Oh, how charming. And our bed is verdant. And you're like, I had to look up the word verdant. It means like green and lush, okay? Like the idea is like, there's like potential going on here. And then he fires back with the love line of all love lines. The beams of our house are cedars and our rafters are firs. <laughs> like, just please someone try that. Try, okay, so, so here's what's happening. What's happening here? There's just like a pitter-patter going on, like a conversation that's happening between a man and a woman, and they're getting to know each other, and they're at dinner. And it's interesting to me that they're not married, they're not even dating, they're not even together. There's just a conversation going on. And here's what I want you to know tonight. That's the first step on the path toward marriage. Step one is the conversation. You start talking. You start having a conversation with one another. And here's what I know. 
I say this, and I think most of you would be like, yeah, that kind of makes sense. Like, if you want to get married, you should probably talk to them first. <laughs> There's two problems. Number one is a, a lot of people actually struggle with the conversation part of, 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 of a relationship. Like men, I'll just speak to you, and women, I'm sure there are some of you who do. Um, men, learning to talk well with the person you fall in love with is not like an optional skill. It's the skill, okay? And, and you learning to talk and share your feelings. Yeah, the ladies are like, yeah! <laughs> but listen, listen, like learning to share your feelings. And then men, I'm just going to give you a line that you can use for the rest of your life. You look the woman in the eyes and you ask this question, how did that make you feel, right? Like now you're asking and now you're in this conversation. Okay, so that's number one. <laughs> this is going to go forever. Anyway, um, li- listen, so the, the first problem is that, but the second problem actually gets more to the core of the issue here. And this is a problem I've discovered for both men and women. Most relationships begin with someone you know, you're talking to them, and suddenly there's this like, oh, 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 I have feelings. This is how it began with my wife. Like, like we were on staff here at the church in summer of 2010. I came in like a career out of college. I'm going to go make a name for my, like all that kind of stuff. And I was like, women, they will just be in my way. And she came into, sorry, it's true. And in summer of 2010, she comes in and she's not wanting any kind of boyfriend because she's about to go study abroad for a year. And so both of us are kind of working together, not wanting to be dating anyone. And then suddenly there was this moment, I'll never forget it, where it was like some random Thursday in July and she got sick and she was home for the day. And I heard that Danielle was sick. And my thought was like, I'd love to bring her some, oh, oh, oh. (laughs) Like I wanted to bring her soup. I wanted to take care of her. And I was like, where did that come from? Here's where it came from, a conversation. We were just working together, talking together, getting to know each other. And I think for some of you, you're so caught up in the idea that your marriage has to begin with what they call in movies the meat cute right? Like you're walking along the street and she's walking along and suddenly there's this hilarious scene that everyone's like, oh, I love that story. That almost never happens. Here's what happens. There's someone you know. I'll stir some things up tonight. Maybe someone's sitting in this room and you've, and and you've known them and you've kind of had that, but you've never really thought of them that way. And then suddenly something happens. You're having a conversation and you realize this person is a kindred spirit. You realize this person actually could be someone important in my life. And you know what the tragedy is? Some of you will ignore that person because you're so caught up in having your meet cute. You're so caught up in having this kind of amazing story where you meet someone and you fall in love and it's just perfect and it's just like a romantic comedy and that never actually happens. And here's a question I just want to ask to some of you tonight. It's not all of you, but some of you know this is you. Here's my question. What if your desire for a good story is actually getting in the way of God's story in your life? What if this desire you have to have this fairy tale story is actually getting in the way of what God is actually trying to do in your life? And so I want to invite you not to think that your romance has to start with this wild and crazy story, but maybe there's someone right in front of you who you just go, you know what? There's feelings there and I'm going to walk into that. And then before we move on from this one, because this is really about how we meet people, I want to address an issue that 10 years ago, if I was preaching this sermon, wouldn't really be an issue. But now it's an issue. When I say an issue, I don't mean a bad thing. I just mean a thing we need to talk about. And that's the subject of dating apps. Can we talk dating apps for a second? Okay, we're going to talk dating apps uh, in case anyone has heard of those. All right, so um, I have no problem with dating apps. I actually think the idea that like, dating apps aren't real life is like, that's not true. Like I know plenty of people now who are married who met on dating apps. Like the idea that dating apps are somehow make you lesser is just not the case at all. But I want to be really clear. So I was having a conversation this week with Sarah Sarwinski, who's on our team, and is just so wise and has just has so much insight um, into so many of these things as she's helped shape this series. And she had a phrase that she used for me when it comes to dating apps, because I, I met my wife before dating apps were like a thing, okay? And so I'm like, I, I don't know how this works. I don't know which way you swipe. Like, I don't know, right? I don't get it. And here's what she said. I, I thought this was such a brilliant phrase. She said, dating apps are a tool, not a ticket. And here's what she meant by that. Dating apps are a tool that you can use to meet someone, and maybe even an effective tool in our modern age. But they are not a ticket that guarantees successful romance. And I think what a lot of people do with dating apps is they go, well, I have an infinite supply of guys that I can just kind of swipe through and figure out, and therefore I must find one. And I think when you start to get into the place where you think dating apps are the thing that is going to be your great savior because you have an infinite supply of people, is actually the place you get into danger with dating apps. See, again, I don't think dating apps are bad. 
I just want you to be aware of the fact that when you are on a dating app, you are doing something that can very quickly become consumerism. Right? Like, let me put it this way. Just, just recently, my wife and I were trying to get a, a new shower faucet for our shower in our master bathroom. And we went on to amazon.com and we're swiping through all of the things. And it's like 500 of the same shower faucet, but this one's a little bigger and this one's a little rounder. And this one has more water pressure, but this one's a little cheaper. And we're just like looking through all of these options and we could never really settle on one. And here's my fear for some of you with dating apps. It's not that dating apps are bad. It's that you need to have the wisdom to understand how quickly it can slip into consumerism. Because this guy is tall and handsome and he's successful and he's driven, but I just thought I'd always marry a guy with blue eyes, right? Or, or this woman, she's amazing and she's driven and she's passionate and she's funny, but her and I just don't agree on our favorite TV shows, right? And so what you've done is you've created this impossible standard because there's so many options in front of you that you actually miss the incredible story God wants to tell through your life. Again, I'm not down on dating apps. I just want you to be aware of how quickly it can slip into this kind of consumerism mentality where men and women are nothing more than something you would get on amazon.com. Don't allow yourself to get sucked into that. Most relationships that end in marriage begin with a conversation. It can be a conversation with someone you meet online. It can be a conversation with someone you meet in person. It can be a conversation with someone you've known your whole life. But don't blow off that conversation because you're looking for some kind of perfect story or some kind of ticket to romance that you think you're going to get automatically online. It goes on this way in verse, uh, or chapter 2 and verse 8. So we're going to move forward a little bit. It says, listen, my beloved, here he comes, leaping across the mountains, bounding over the hills. My beloved is like a gazelle or a young stag. Look, there he stands behind our wall, gazing through my windows, peering through the lattice. Kind of creepy, okay? <laughs> The beloved spoke and said to me, Arise, my darling, my beautiful one, and come with me. See, the winter is past and the rains are over and gone. Flowers appear on the earth and the season of singing has come. The cooing of doves is heard in our land. And the fig tree appears or forms its early fruit. And the blossoming vines spread their fragrance. Like, what's he describing? He's describing a season none of us know anything about here called spring. Okay. Where like if you live in a place with something called winter, where it's not 70 degrees and sunny all the time, spring comes next. And there's this excitement and this passion like the winter is over. There's possibility all around us. That's how it feels at the beginning of a relationship, right? Like isn't that how it feels? You've got this like, I met her and I'm so excited and we'll see what happens. Or, or like you're, yeah, that's what dudes do to themselves. And then what women do is they get like 16 of their friends around and discuss the matter, right? Um, and, and that's what happens. And then verse 13, here's what the man says to the woman. He says, arise and come, my darling, my beautiful one, come with me. What happens? There's possibility, there's conversation, things are starting to get stirred up. And then they take the second step on the path to marriage. If the first step is the conversation, the second step is the chase. The chase. The man looks at the woman and says, come with me. C come with me. C come, let's, let's do this journey together. Let's go on this journey together. It is a chase. There is a sort of pursuit that happens. And I want to be clear that this pursuit isn't some sort of modern invention of culture that we live in. This pursuit is a deeply biblical thing. In fact, it's a deeply human thing. And it's something that both men and women participate in. So let's start the part of the sermon where I speak to men and I speak to women. Men, you're up first. Men, here is what I believe you are called to do in this chase. I believe, based on the teaching of the Bible, I believe, based on who men are called to be, that men should take the risk and ask women on dates. That's what men should do. And the women said amen. So listen, here's what I mean by that. When I say take the risk and ask women on dates, I do not mean texting them saying, you want to hang out sometime? That's not what I mean. I do not mean sliding into the DMs and be like, you want to kick it in my house? That is not a date. Here's a date. You walk up to a woman that you know and you've been talking with and you respectfully ask and you say something like this, I am interested in you. I would like to take you on a date. Are you free next Friday? That's asking someone on a date. You express your affection. You give your intention, and then you give an invitation. That is a date. And until you do it that clearly, you have never asked anyone on a date. And here's my fear. Men, this is where it's going to get intense. My fear for some of you is the reason you're not clearly asking and risking to ask anyone on a date is because you're terrified of failure. You're terrified of getting told no. And I want to be clear, as a man who's standing up here married, you might be like, oh, easy for you to say no. I've been there. 
I've gotten the rejection. I have not just been friend-zoned, I have been brother-zoned, okay? <laughs> Brutal. Like, I see you as a brother. Like, no, don't see me as a brother. So I've been there, and it's painful. Well, let me tell you something, men. There may be a terrifying notion in your mind that if I ask her out, now I'm specific, she can shoot me down, she can say no, and I get that that is terrifying. But can I tell you, the only thing more terrifying than you risking and failing is you being a man who's never willing to risk. That is terrifying. Like that kind of man is never going to really flourish into the man God wants you to be. Man, God has called you to risk. God has called you to move first. God has called you to step out and say, take the awkward moment. Take that moment. I don't mean be aggressive or rude or domineering. I mean that God has called you to lead, and that is going to mean that you are going to take the risk and ask women on dates. But women, you're not off the hook here. This isn't like, well, men will take care of it. No, no, you have a job too. Women, you should take the responsibility to respond with clarity. So when I say responsibility, I mean the power. Women, yeah, that's right. I mean the power. I mean that you are the gatekeeper. I mean that you have the power and the ability to say yes or to say no. Listen, women, this is not a yes or no. He asks you on a date and you're like, I don't, I'm kind of busy. busy? Uh, I don't, maybe, maybe not right now, but later. That's not clarity. In that moment, he has just risked and he has asked you on a date. And for you to kind of be like, well, I'm not really sure. I don't really, uh," like, it it doesn't help him. And listen, it doesn't help you. Because if you decide not to be clear, if it's a no, and you you just do not want to go on the date, for you to say something like, I'm so flattered that you asked, but no, thank you, I'm not interested, that feels painful in the moment, right? But you can either have painful in the moment or painful for the next six months when he doesn't really get the clue, right? So, So you get to pick one. And women, your job is to be the gatekeeper. I really mean this. In a relationship, your job is to say, no, that man doesn't get to chase after my heart because he doesn't love Jesus. That man doesn't get to chase after my heart because he doesn't treat women with respect. That man does not get to chase after my heart because I have standards. That's what you're called to do. Women, you get the responsibility of responding with clarity. That's a power that's handed to you. When a man asks you on a date, he is handing you the ability to say yes or no, and you have the responsibility to respond to that with clarity. So see, listen, I want, I want this to be the type of place where we're willing to just like ask people on dates. Go on a date. Say yes, say no, that's okay. Like just go on a date. Because here's the problem. Sometimes you're like, if I go on a date, that means we're married. No. If I go on a date, everyone's gonna be talking about it. Probably not because no one's thinking about you because they're thinking about themselves, right? Listen, a date, let's say it this way. A date is an event, not a commitment. You just go, you go. And listen, if you feel unsafe, uncomfortable, don't go. But it's an event, not a commitment. And so what, is, what does it begin with? It begins with a conversation, then there's this chase where she's, is she, she's welcoming him to come after and he's saying, come with me, my darling. Let's go into this adventure. And men, I want you to step up to the plate and move first. And women, I want you to have the courage to say yes or no based on what you actually believe. It goes on this way in verse 16 of chapter two. Yeah, she is saying this. She says, my beloved is mine and I'm his. This is actually this like really beautiful verse for you to memorize. Like I am my beloved's and he is mine. Like there's this, here's who he is. Here's who I am. And I love in this moment that this is the third step of a relationship. It's the third step of the path to marriage. See, it starts with a conversation and then there's the chase. And then at some point there becomes clarity, right? There's clarity. I'm my beloved's, he's mine. Again, ancient Hebrew for boyfriend, girlfriend. Ancient Hebrew for we're going together or whatever phrase you kids use these days. Like this is ancient Hebrew for we're exclusive. We're together. We're dating. If you're like, I don't like the word dating, use whatever you want, but get some clarity around this. Get some clarity around this. This is the next step. I'm my beloved. He is mine. We understand what this relationship is. Back in the day, we called it the DTR, define the relationship, right? Like we're going to define this. Why? Because to be unclear is to be unkind. And for some of you, you're like, well, I don't want to be clear with him because that would feel mean. No, mean is you leading someone on into a relationship that's never actually going to happen. To be unclear is to be unkind. Let me give you another unkind phrase. Some of you might use. Let's not ruin this with a label. Can we talk about that for a second? <laughs> yeah, yeah let's, let's not ruin this with a label. So, um, this is a phrase that we love to use, um, and, and ultimately it's a phrase that, that is popular. Um, I, I just think it's a deeply troubling phrase. 
Like if you're kind of in this place, and, and, and I heard this phrase this week, I'd never heard it before. So I'm like, I'm going to miss it somehow. But like situationship, right? Like this is going on. And you're just super unclear on like what this is. Are we into each other? Or are we just kind of like using each other? What's happening here? To be unclear is to be unkind. And to say, I don't want to ruin this with a label is actually the process of ruining it. Why? Because labeling things, naming things brings order and clarity to your life. And here's what you know. This is true in every area of your life, right? Like if you were in your roommates and the four of you were kind of sitting around the couch and there were a bunch of phones on the coffee table, you wouldn't just call them the phones, right? You'd be like, that's my phone. Why? Because now it's clear that it's your phone and not their phone. You do the same thing with everything else in your life. Like some of you, again, live with roommates or you live with your family and you have like a special kind of milk in the fridge and you put a label on it. Like you put your name on it. And it's wild to me that some of you have labeled your dairy more than your relationships, right? Like this is like, right? This is what happens. I'm not trying to be mean. I'm trying to say, this is what we do. We label everything else in our life. But then it comes to this other human soul in front of us and we're like, I don't want to ruin it with a label. Now listen, We are called to label things, to name things. It doesn't ruin things. And listen, here's the other problem with this whole, I don't want to ruin it with a label. You already have a label. You just don't want to say it out loud. Like, you know, they're not your husband. You know, it's not wife. You know, if they stopped calling for six months, you'd be upset. So there's a label there. And my only encouragement to you isn't to say you have to be boyfriend or girlfriend. Again, I don't care what language you use. But to be unclear is to be unkind. And I see far too many relationships that are just kind of this nebulous thing that no one actually wants to label or name. And my fear is that sometimes we don't want to label it or name it because we don't want to close off other options. You are called to name it. Listen, there's a conversation. There's a chase. There's clarity that happens. I want you to see what happens next here. What happens next here, if I can get to the next page. Song Psalms chapter one, verse four. I want to show you why we're going back to chapter one. There's some friends that are talking. Like there's people around and they say, we rejoice and delight in you and we will praise your love more than wine. And then you'll also see her on screen. It happens in chapter one, chapter five, chapter six, chapter eight. Over and over and over again throughout this, there's like a man and a woman and there's all this relationship drama and tension going on. And then there's these friends who chime in from time to time. Like they have something to say. So it's not just a man and a woman. It's a man and a woman in the context of a relationship in the context of community. See, that's the fourth step along our path to marriage. It's community. It's community. It's the people around you. Listen, it starts with a conversation, then there's a chase, then there's some clarity, and then you've got people around you. You've got people who are speaking into the relationship, who know you, who see you, who can challenge you, who can say, no, you're spending a little too much time with him. Hey, you stopped hanging out with everyone. He changes you. Whenever you're with him, it's not so good. So here's what you need to know. A healthy relationship cannot grow in isolation. And listen, here's what I believe. A relationship can grow in isolation, but not a healthy one. And if you have gotten to the point with your boyfriend or girlfriend or significant other where all you do is hang out with each other and you've cut off all ties to your friends and family and church and those that love you, you are in a dangerous spot. See, the fifth step or the fourth step along the way is that we would be in community, that there would be people who walk this road with us. It goes on this way in verse, uh, chapter 3, verse 10. It says, daughters of Jerusalem, come out and look at you, daughters of Zion. Look unto King Solomon wearing a crown and the crown which his mother crowned him. On the day of his wedding, his heart rejoiced. So here's what we've arrived at. We're in chapter three and verse 11 and now we're at the wedding day. See, there's been a conversation. There's been a chase. There's been some clarity that's happened about who we are. I'm my beloved's and he is mine. And then there's a community that's around them celebrating, but it's leading to something. It's building to something. There's a climax coming and that climax is in the covenant of marriage. That's step number five. We have the covenant. There's a covenant. And a covenant of marriage is not just an agreement. It's not just a contract. It is this thing that totally reshapes who you are as a human being and how you relate to another person. So here's what I need you to know, that marriage is ultimately the goal of romance. That is the destination. That is where we are aiming. Marriage isn't just a piece of paper. It's not just a legal agreement. It is a commitment, not of current love, but of future love. When you get married, you're not saying, I love you. You're saying, I promise to love you even when you're at your worst. That's what marriage is. And that's where it should be heading. Listen, I want to say this clearly tonight. Dating is not a destination, right? Dating is not the goal. Dating is not the destination. Dating is not the end game here. It's like if you were getting on a plane and you were sitting in your seat and it took off and it landed at the next airport and everyone's getting off the plane. You're like, I'm good. Take me back. Like no one does that, right? Why? 
The point is to get to the destination, to get off the plane, to get to the place you're actually going. Dating is the plane. And for some of you, you've decided to just like go back and forth, back and forth, back and forth on the plane, but you never actually get anywhere. You feel stuck in life. And that's why. Because dating isn't a destination. Like, listen, I want us all to stop looking at this stage of your life. Stop looking for a boyfriend or girlfriend and start looking for a husband or a wife. And if that terrifies you, if you're like, I'm not ready to even think about a husband or a wife, stay single. Don't lead someone down a road where you're not even sure you want to get married or you want to even think about marriage. Don't lead someone down that road. Now listen, I'm not saying like you meet someone, you ask them on a date, first date, you're like, so you in life? You know, that's not what we have to do. That's not my call here. It's just, we should constantly be asking a question in our dating relationship. And here's the question we should be asking, where is this relationship going? You should be asking it to each other. You should be asking it to yourself. You should be thinking about it. And the question, the answer might be, we just met. We just went on our first date. We're going to get to know each other and figure this out. But if the answer is, I have no idea, you're in a dangerous place. It's the ultimate destination is not dating. It's marriage. And we're going to talk about marriage in a few weeks from now. That's going to be a theme of a, a couple of the sermons down the road. But I want you to know it's not the destination. Dating is not the destination. The covenant of marriage is. It goes on this way. Next part. In verse, or chapter 4, verse 16, it says, Awake, north wind, and come, south wind. Blow on my garden that its fragrance may spread everywhere. Let my beloved come into his garden and taste its choice fruits. All right, let's be adults here. The garden being described here is something that is below the waist and above the knees, okay? That's what we're talking about. This is where I talk about. This is romantic and erotic and sexual in every kind of way. They just got married, and now there is some blowing on the garden happening, Okay? I didn't say it. It's there. It goes on. It gets better. It says in verse five, chapter 5, verse 1, it says, I have come to my garden, my sister, my bride. Sister, bri- I, it is. Okay. <laughs> I have gathered my myrrh with spice. I have eaten my honeycomb with my honey, and I have drunk my wine and my milk. Like, this is a man who is satisfied. This is a man who is feeling the glow of sex. That's what's happening here. And again, for so many of us, you grow up in church and you think of sex as this dirty, gross, foul, icky thing that we're not supposed to talk about. But the book of Song of Solomon doesn't, doesn't have that. Song of Songs is going to celebrate it. See, because here's what Song of Songs understands. That it begins with a, a conversation and then there's a chase. There's some clarity and then there's community and there's the covenant of marriage. But then what happens next in step six is the consummation, which is like the theology word for sex. It's this good, beautiful, wonderful thing that we get to celebrate. It's this incredible gift that God gives for the context of marriage. It is a wonderful blessing and not something we should ever snicker at or laugh at or dismiss. In fact, I want to make a bold claim tonight. And this might be um, the part of the sermon where you're just like, I can't believe this. But here's the claim. I want to make the claim tonight that the best sex is married sex. That's the claim tonight. The best sex is married sex. Now listen, I'm not making that claim because like I have a bunch of experience on both sides. I'm just going to be honest. I didn't have sex before marriage. And so I can't like compare. I'm not like up here being like, let me describe. No, that's not it at all. But there's two reasons I believe that. Number one, um, a growing body of literature is showing the whole idea that just kind of sleep around with everyone and get whatever experiences you want and never really settle down is actually making no one happy. And you don't actually need to re- read research to know that. You can just kind of look around and realize how unhappy and how unsatisfied people are. Uh, Again, so this isn't research from like right-wing Christian conservative Bible people. It's like secular research coming out being like, we didn't want to conclude this, but we're actually going to conclude that marriage is probably the thing that will make you most satisfied. So that's number one. But number two is actually a theological point. And the reason I can claim that married sex is the best sex is right at the beginning, God creates two human beings, puts them in the garden, and it says this in Genesis chapter 2, that they were naked and unashamed. Like in other words, they were together and they were completely naked, but there was no shame. And that's what marital sex is meant to bring us together toward, being naked and unashamed. And that's true in a physical, literal sense, but it's also true in a spiritual sense. So here's the problem. If you're not married and you're having sex with someone, you and that person aren't certain that you're going to be having sex 10 years from now. And so what happens is you're ultimately trying to keep one another. There's an insecurity that if anything ever awkward or difficult or tense happens in the relationship or in the sexual act, that you should be nervous about that. What is he thinking? Is she judging me? Is he going to leave me? Is he going to abandon me? See, that's what it feels like when you're in this kind of relationship that doesn't have the permanence of marriage. But when you're in the permanence of marriage, you're able to be with another person in such a way that says, listen, I am fully known and fully loved. I am fully known and yet fully accepted. Listen, the marriage covenant, the marriage covenant, only the marriage covenant allows you to be fully known by another human being and yet fully loved. 
Listen, sex is this beautiful, good gift. And when you have it in the context of marriage, when it's celebrated in the context of marriage, it is something that is a blessing rather than a curse upon your life. It goes on this way. This is going to be our seventh and final step. In verse eight, or chapter 8, verse 5, it says, Under the apple tree I roused you. There your mother conceived you. There was she who gave, or, or sorry, there she who gave, who was in labor, gave you birth. So we've just been talking about like flirting and clarity and marriage and like sex and eroticism and all of that. And then suddenly out of nowhere, it's like your mama conceived you. Yeah, remember giving birth? And you're like, whoa, 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 whoa. This was like this cool love story that's kind of like really wickedly awesome. And then suddenly it's like babies are involved. Suddenly it's like birthing people and conceiving them. What is going on here? And I want you to know that it's the natural conclusion of the path to marriage. So here's our seventh step. Our seventh step after consummation, after sex, is children. It's children. And listen, I know in a world we, the, we live in, we've kind of like cut off the idea of sex from children and said those two things have no, nothing to do with one another. But I need you to know they have a lot to do with each other. In fact, like your very existence has something to do with that reality, right? And, and so ultimately, why do we have children? Yeah, you ever thought about that? Maybe you wanted children. You ever thought about why? Like, like back in the day, they're like, we need to have 100 children to work the farm, right? I, I assume there's no farm owners in here, Okay. So, so, so why do you have children? And the answer was never about working the farm. It was always about this love between two people overflowing into the world to bless the world, not just with their good deeds, but with the next generation of human beings. That's children. The overflow of the love between two people. And that's the natural culmination of this path where you meet and you chase one another and there's clarity and community. Then you get married and you have sex and you have children. So what? So the next thing that children do is they grow up and they begin a conversation with someone. That's the path to marriage. That's what we're invited to think about. That's what goes on in the book of Song of Solomon. Again, it's not a prescription of here's the five things you must do, but it describes a normative path for all of us. So let me close tonight with three final thoughts on the book of uh, Song of Songs. And again, I just encourage you, if you'd never read it, uh, to just go read it all the way through. And if it's confusing to you, great. Welcome to the club called Everyone. All right, three final thoughts. Three final thoughts. Number one, um, the least painful way to marriage is through the ordered path. The least painful way to marriage is through the ordered path. Let me explain it this way. We're going to put our path to marriage back up here right now. Um, For many people, um, the problem is that they don't go along the path that's ordered for them. They start at the conversation. Sometimes there is a chase. And in our culture, I'll just speak this out loud, it goes straight to sex. And then it bounces off of sex to clarity. Like, I guess we had sex, so we should figure out what we are. Skips community, ignores the covenant altogether, and that starts to happen. Or you start to meet and you start to get to know each other and you're clear and then there's children involved. And there's children involved before there's marriage. And one of my best friends from growing up got pregnant with a woman before uh, they got married. And, and listen, God has beautifully redeemed their story. Like it's this really wonderful story that he, God has really redeemed. But I think if he stood here tonight, he would tell you how much pain was inflicted because of that. Ultimately, there's an order and the order matters. Some people want to skip over the conversation and just go straight to the chase. Some of you are going to leave tonight being like, Brian told me to ask people on dates, so her, right there, right? And, and, and like, that's not it. There's an order. And when you walk in order, there is less pain. You save yourself pain. It's not just some kind of stodgy morality. It's that I'm trying to save you pain in this life by following this order. Here's number two. Um, the healthiest relationships belong to people who humble themselves, who humble themselves every step of the way. Uh, Again, let me bring it back to our path to marriage here. The conversation, this is humbling because you have to recognize that there might actually be someone in my world that I've never even seen as a potential spouse and they are. The chase is humbling because men, you're gonna have to humble yourself and ask with the offer that you might actually get rejected. And women, you're gonna have to humble yourself with the idea that you're gonna be asked and you might be put in an awkward moment. It is humbling. The clarity is always humbling because now you've decided that we're together and we're limiting our other options and we're actually in this community is humbling because it always forces you to listen to the opinions of other people even when you don't like them. The covenant of marriage is absolutely humbling. When you get married, you realize that you're not as awesome as you thought you were. You just realize no one ever saw how miserable you were sometimes. You get married and it humbles you. It makes you a humble man or woman. When you have sex, it humbles you. You might think like, sex, like that's all about me. Not if you're doing married sex right. It is about the other person. You humble yourself to serve them. And believe me, children will humble you more than anything else in this world. This is what it does. And why is it important that you're humbled? Because the Bible says, humble yourself before the Lord and he'll raise you up. You want God to raise you up through something like this? Humble yourself. Get to your knees. Seek after the Lord. 
The healthiest relationships belong to couples who humble themselves. Final thought, uh, the wisest couples recognize God in every step of the way. The wisest couples recognize God at every step of this path to marriage. Again, we'll show the path to marriage here. The wisest couples understand that this chase is actually something that God did to them. Before you wanted anything to do with God, God wanted something to do with you. He chased after you. The great story of the gospel isn't that you picked God, it's that God picked you. He wanted you. He stepped out. He loved you before you loved him. There's clarity of the gospel. There's clarity around our relationship with God. There's a community that we become part of as the people of God, where it's not just enough for us to follow Jesus on our own, but there's a community we're part of. The covenant is this great covenant that God gives to us, where we have a relationship with God, and it is a defined covenant where he loves us with the love of Christ. You might say, consummation, sex, what does that have to do with God? I'll tell you what it has to do with God. This is so cool. Do you know that sex was never meant to point to sex? Sex was always meant to point to heaven. Like heaven is described as a wedding. Heaven is described as this unbelievable feeling of bliss. That's what sex is meant to point to. Sex is not meant to point to you or your feelings. It's meant to point to heaven. And then ultimately, children, we become the children of God. So when you walk this road, you start to recognize that God is present in every single step. See, see listen to me. Um, this path to marriage we're describing tonight is a path that should ultimately bring you to worship God. I said at the beginning that it's about relationships and romance, but it's actually about far more than that. It's about God. And I want you to know that most people mess this up. And most people mess this up because they actually make it about the path to marriage rather than about the God who's behind marriage. So I want you to know this, that the path to marriage, the path to marriage is full of pain if you make it your God. And can I just challenge that some of you have made it your God? Your whole obsession in your entire life is that you would be, be in a relationship and have romance and have that story and get married and have babies and your entire existence is wrapped around that. If you make the path to marriage your God, it will ruin you. It will make you miserable and it will fill your life with pain. And some of you know exactly what I'm talking about. But then can I tell you this too? That the path to marriage is full of promise if you submit it to your God. If you stop saying, well, I'm 28 and I always thought I'd be married by 28 or I'm out of college and I always thought I'd meet my husband or my wife in college or, or I'm in a relationship with someone and, and it's kind of difficult and I always thought relationships should be easy as if two sinners being together should ever be easy. But you realize like, no, I'm going to submit this to God. And when you submit your relationship to God, your life becomes full of promise. Because again, the great promise of the scriptures is that you humble yourself before the Lord and he will raise you up. That's what we're going to do tonight as we worship, as we sing in closing here. Our band's going to make their way out, um, and we're going to sing. Um, but I want to challenge someone in this room who's been making relationships, the path to marriage, their God, tonight to repent, to turn from that, and to turn to God. That all of us would say, we're going to submit that relationship to God. We're going to submit the idea that we'll be married or have babies someday. We're going to submit all of that to God. And watch what God happens to your life when you submit it to him. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thanks for tonight. Father in heaven, thank you for the opportunity to open your word. God's Song of Solomon is this mysterious, beautiful, wonderful book that I don't fully understand, and yet, God, you're doing something miraculously through it. God, I pray for anyone in this room who just feels lonely, feels like they're not even on the path, they're nowhere near the path. God, I pray that you would fill their heart with the promise of the Holy Spirit, the promise of the future you have for them. God, I pray for anyone who's been on this path and recognizing that there's some, uh, there's some course correcting they need to do. God, I pray they would submit their relationship to you submit their lives to you. God, may that be so. As we worship Jesus right now, help us to be a people filled with promise, filled with a future, filled with hope, filled with your presence, filled with Jesus. We pray this in Christ's name and all God's people said, amen.